It's my pleasure to welcome you to this panel on the topic of the travel pan from multiple perspectives. When we were putting together the Stanford Live season over a year ago, we began with an interest in human empathy and connection and focused our inquiry on the very human subjects of life, love, and loss. A number of programs coalesced around the idea of migration. We have co-commissioned co an oratorio by Jimmy Lopez and Nilo Cruz for soprano and orchestra that foregrounds DACA as, as a theme and is called Dreamers. It will be performed here in Bing next March by Esapekka Salonen and the Philharmonia Orchestra. On Sunday, November 4th, coming up, we have leading early music scholar and performer Jordi Saval bringing a program that musically traces the routes of slavery um, covering the span of 1444 to 1888 and several continents. And just last Saturday, we had uh, a San Francisco-based singer-songwriter named Deanna Gameros give a concert in our studio space right next door. Deanna was born in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and moved to the U.S. as a teenager and lived here undocumented for a long period of time. During her performance at the Bing Studio, she uh, pulled out her brand new green card and showed it to us. She had literally gotten it the day before. So her concert with us was um, her first as a legal resident and was a very special and uh, celebratory occasion. So it was a very moving night and it dovetailed with our themes so nicely. So um, as you know, this Saturday we have a special performance by the Kronos Quartet who will be performing the music, music of the band Countries. Kronos has been a regular part of Stanford Live and previously Stanford Lively Arts programming for many decades. Uh, Kronos, as many of you may know, is based in San Francisco and this year it celebrates its 45th anniversary. Since its inception, uh, they've commissioned more than 950 new works, which is a truly astounding number. Uh, their most recent initiative is called 50 for the Future, and it's a commissioning and education project aimed at developing young musicians. Through the program, Kronos commissions 50 new works, 25 by women, 25 by men, and provides the scores, parts, and other materials online for free. Stanford Live is a proud supporter of this work. So when Kronos brought us the idea of a concert featuring music from all the band countries, we knew it would be right at home in this season. They already had a strong supporter at Stanford in Professor Abbas Milani in Iranian studies, which provided us a rich opportunity for academic engagement. We met with Professor Milani over the summer, and the idea, structure, and participants uh, seemed to take shape in, in minutes of beginning the conversation. And what came out of that meeting was a desire to present the impact and effects of the ban from multiple perspectives beyond what we hear in the news. How is the ban affecting artists? What is the impact of the ban on the cultural life of this campus and other campuses? I want to thank you all for being here. Um, and a little note on process, we're going to, maybe you got note cards on the way in. If you could, uh, as the, the panel is going on, jot down your questions. At a later point in the panel, we'll collect them and make sure that they get addressed to the panel. Um, so at this time, I'd like to introduce, introduce our moderator. Professor um, Abbas Milani is the Hamid and Christina Mogadem Director of Iranian Studies and Adjunct Professor at the Center of Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law at the Freeman Spogli Institute here at Stanford. He is one of the, co one of the founding co-directors of the Iran Democracy Project and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. 
He's an expert on U.S.-Iran relations, as well as Iranian culture, political, and security issues. Please join me in welcoming Professor Milani. by saying a few words about how this meeting came about, uh, then say a few words about uh, the number of Stanford institutions and individuals who have uh, supported this effort, then briefly introduce the panelists, and then get out of the way and let them do their presentation, and then we'll open it for a question and answer at the end of the uh, event. Uh, on the day when the ban on travel from Muslim countries when it was announced was for me one of the most difficult days uh, at Stanford. Many students from countries, particularly Iranian students, came to my office extremely distraught. They weren't sure whether they were going to be able to continue their education. They didn't know whether they would be able to ever leave uh, in the hope of coming back. Uh, and Immediately, I tried to get in touch with some people who I thought might be able to organize a committee, a meeting on campus to give these students a reassurance. Uh, Mike, uh, who has been a very dear and colleague of mine for 15 years, was the first one I talked to. He said, absolutely, we should try to organize this. A few days later, I went to a concert uh, of the Kronos Quartet. And that night, they performed three brilliant pieces from the three of the countries that were banned. Uh, in the intermission, I tried to connect with David, and I said, if we try to organize an event on campus with music from banned countries, would Kronos be able to be willing to participate? On the spot, he said yes. And if you have followed the Kronos Quartet, they have spent 40 years in trying to incorporate music from other countries at the most sublime musical level and at the most humanitarian, inclusive perspective. That was about two years ago. Uh, this concert Saturday is really the result of that two-year effort. Our initial hope was to find an open space at Stanford campus where we would have a free concert that would be live streamed to around the world with Kronos uh, performing music from these banned countries. The bureaucracies and the difficulties as finding it took two years. In these two years, David and Kronos Quartet have been busy commissioning works from artists from these different countries. Uh, I think it is truly remarkably fortuitous that we have a place like Stanford we have colleagues like Mike McFall and Martha Crenshaw, and we have a Kronos Quartet right nearby who embodies music as a bridge to humanitarian community. That combination gave us 
this Saturday. And once we had a plan, we went to the campus and asked other institutions for help. And everyone we approached, without fail, has been willing to contribute something, whether uh, woman power, manpower, or financial power. Let me read you briefly the list of countries, uh, institutions that had helped. The Provost Drell's office, Vice President of the Arts, Harry Lehman's office, Freeman Swogley Institute, Mr. Mike McFall, the Stanford Global Studies, the Amposi Program Islamic Studies, Center for African Studies, Center for Continuing Studies, Center for Russia, East European and Eurasian Studies, Persian Student Association, Center for uh, Asian Studies, Center Department of Anthropology, Department of uh, Music, and Department of Religious Studies. And we could not have a better panel to uh, have this uh, discussion. Uh, I am not going to say much about the Kronos Quartet. I think their reputation precedes them. They are easily the most acclaimed global quartet that plays classical music at the most avant-garde experimental level and combines it with music from all over the world. That was my initial introduction to them, and it, they have been truly a beacon of progressive, uh, perfect musicality in this region. We are very lucky to have them, and we are very lucky to have David here. Uh, we are going to begin with comments by Professor McFall, who has many, many, many uh, distinctions the most recent being that he is one of the top 10 most wanted people by Putin. Uh, 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 he is uh, the director of Freeman Spogli Institute now, a professor of political science, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. Uh, he is uh, also a commentator. Uh, is a great scholar of Russia. I think many people would say he is now the preeminent scholar of Russian politics in uh, Iran. Uh, and I think uh, more important than anything, I've had the pleasure of working with Mike for uh, 15 years that I've been at Stanford. He is absolutely incessantly interested in democracy and in being the voice of the marginalized people. He's going to talk about the ban in the larger context of uh, US policy. Professor Cranshaw is arguably the most serious scholar of terrorism in the United States. He's done it at the, she's done it at the empirical level for many, many years and can tell us who this uh, fear is actually from, who were the people who have actually come here, does the ban have any rational connection to all of this? And how does the ban actually connect to the real numbers? Does, does it have any real connection? David is going to talk about his uh, remarkable group, the work they have done for 40 years. And then at the end, we're going to hear from a very talented young lady who is an Iranian artist whose work we're going to hear, I understand, on Sunday, and has been in contact with the Kronos Quartet for the last two years. The Kronos Quartet 
has gone out of its way for the last three, four years that I have known to bring about Iranian artists, Iranian vocalists, Iranian uh, composers to work with them. As you know, Iranian vocalists, women vocalists, are banned from performing in Iran. I think they have performed more in the last two years with Kronos that they have in Iran for the last 39 years. So with that wonderful news, Professor McFall. Well, thank you, Abbas, and thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, and just if I could just say an aside, a footnote to what you said about our collaboration over the last 15 years. Uh, we've written things together. We had a project on Iran together. We still write things together uh, in terms of what we do uh, uh, and academically. But uh, Abbas has exposed me because of the way he thinks about uh, his own mission here at Stanford to all kinds of Iranian or Persian culture. Uh, extraordinary what you've done for our campus in that regard, but extraordinary what you've done for me. Uh, we own lots of music now from uh, Persia that we did not have before I met you. And so I appreciate that, Abbas. Um, I'm going to just make three and maybe four points, depending on how long it takes me to make the first three, uh, about why this Muslim ban, and I'm going to call it that deliberately, um, even though they added some countries to obfuscate it, but that's what it was initially. Um, why it's just not in America's national interest. That's all I want to, that's what I want to define. First, and I hope most obviously, it's immoral. It's immoral to decide who should come into our country based on their religion. It's also immoral to keep out of our country refugees from the very countries that in part we are responsible for making them refugees. Yemen is on the list. Yemen thankfully is getting a lot of attention these days because of what happened to our colleague and I hope not our former colleague Jamal Khashoggi. He, he actually spoke here at Stanford last year at FSI. Um, but we are responsible for these refugees. Those are American weapons, American munitions that are falling in Yemen. And in all these places, we bear some responsibility. So it's just immoral. That's argument number one why it's horrible. Number two, and maybe I think Martha will speak more about this so I won't go into it, but there's just no empirical evidence to suggest that this ban has made us more secure here at home. I've never heard of terrorists from Iran uh, attacking people in the United States. And, and so the, the very uh, predicate of what the, the Trump administration argued for, for this ban, there's just no data to suggest that it's having that effect domestically. But the third one is the, the one I just want to really dwell on a little bit, which is the longer term, uh, the bigger part of why this damages American national security interests. It's because we used to be, and we're considered the beacon on the hill, a country that was democratic. Uh, all the other countries on this list are not democratic countries, right? We, we were, and, and I want to be clear about this, it is a, it's a mixed history. I've written a whole book about it. Uh, it is not black and white. The Trump administration is not the first administration to uh, work with dictators, but it feels qualitatively different uh, over the last couple of years. Um, and what, what I think the president misses is when you side so hard against values, against human rights, uh, in the long term, that hurts 
our ability to get things done around the world. Not only in the Middle East, but first and foremost in the Middle East. But more broadly, we, use, we lose that moral argument. We lose the uh, ability to inspire small d Democrats around the world in a way that we have done for two centuries. And again, it's not black and white, it's not even, but I feel like this act in particular really erodes our ability to uh, be that inspiration for people around the world. And think about it. Who are the people actually from Libya, North Korea, Somalia, Syria, Venezuela, Yemen, who are trying to come here? They're the very people, they're the very small d Democrats that are fleeing tyrannical regimes that are inspired to come to the United States in part because of our values and that in the long run could be our most important allies uh, uh, when and if they have the chance to go back to their countries and if, even when they don't to help our society to understand their societies in a more profound way. So it, it just cuts us off and I think over the long run that is the, the deep, deep damage that is done um, from this travel ban. It's on my mind in particular because of Khashoggi right now. Uh, there are some countries that were left off that list, uh, Saudi Arabia being one, um, and you cannot explain that uh, when you go abroad and you meet with people. You cannot explain that hypocrisy. That to me erodes uh, our um, respect in the world and that, to that, there's a lot of data to support that hypothesis. If you go to the Pew Tra Charitable Trust and you look at across the board, uh, we are down in every single country uh, over the, uh, since the Trump administration in terms of the respect for the United States with the exception of Russia and Israel. Those are the only two countries we've gone up. Um, and people say, well, why does that matter? It matters because that helps us get things done in diplomacy. I'm a former ambassador, I used to be the ambassador in Russia, and I can tell you that having moral standing helps you get things done that are, I would argue, are in America's long-term national interest. And then fourth and finally, just, I, I just wanna uh, also just echo what Abbas said on a personal level, uh, knowing people, knowing students, I, I too met those students, and just realize this hurts us here at Stanford. This hurts our ability to interact with smart, inspirational people all over the world. We run a uh, summer fellows program at FSI where we try to bring people from all over the world uh, working on issues of democracy and human rights. This very tangibly, very concretely uh, limits the kinds of people that we uh, bring to that program that we otherwise would have brought. Uh, that's not good for Stanford. That's not good for the, the community of Stanford, obviously, it's not good for those people that otherwise would participate. All right, those are my four arguments. Um, it's really, really bad. <laughs> In conclusion, yes, Martha. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for organizing this, Abbas. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, even though it's a very sad subject, and I'm pleased that people want to know more about it. Uh, first of all, let me just preface my two points that I want to make with just a brief observation, which is that we have an undergraduate student association that is interested in policy toward the Middle East, uh, and they're no longer able to have their meetings here in the United States because their members can't come from the Middle East. 
So they've had to move their meetings, I think, most recently to London. To Oxford, yeah. To Oxford, because they couldn't, uh, they, the, the people who would normally have come to the meetings simply can't come anymore. These are students from the Middle East who want to come to a student gathering. So these are the real people who are being affected. So I just want to make two broader points. Uh, one is that this ban, the travel ban, is part of a much broader initiative that targets immigrants and foreigners. Foreigners, it's a nativist trend uh, that has much wider repercussions. And second, to, uh, to expand on what Mike said, that there's no empirical basis uh, the travel ban as it stands now is the third iteration of such a ban and with each iteration the administration removes some countries to try to make it appear less of a ban on Muslims even though when he was campaigning uh, Trump had said that he wanted a Muslim ban and there was no doubt that this is what the intention was adding North Korea and Venezuela. Uh, North Korean citizens don't travel to the U.S., and the ban on Venezuela only affects the elite, not ordinary Venezuelans. Uh, it's, it's hard to see this as anything other than an afterthought. Uh, this ban was struck down by lower courts, and they said that the administration had not presented any evidence that banning people from these countries would in any way help American national security or that the presence of people from these countries was detrimental to national security. Finally, the ban got to the Supreme Court and they upheld it by a vote of five to four uh, with Chief Justice Roberts, the swing vote, so barely upheld. So uh, in my view, the lower courts uh, were certainly right. If you look at the overall context of the ban, you see that this is part of an anti-refugee sentiment. We've stopped admitting as many refugees. Uh, as Mike pointed out, the four countries, uh, Libya, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, are afflicted by terrible destructive civil wars with thousands of refugees. Yemen is a humanitarian catastrophe. And basically, we're blocking refugees from everywhere. So this is part of that trend. It's part of a trend that says we don't want immigrants coming across the southern border. We want to build a beautiful wall on the border of separating families of parents uh, from children. Uh, it's a part of an America first sort of strategy. Uh, but the empirical basis, the U.S. has just issued a new national strategy for combating terrorism. This is a regularly issued document that was mandated by Congress uh, some years before. Uh, I don't think it even mentions this travel ban as being an integral part of American counterterrorism policy. So what is the reality, the empirical reality of people coming to the United States in order to commit acts of terrorism, in particular people from these countries? Uh, I happened to have conducted a study along with some other researchers that was actually part uh, of a project funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, ironically enough, and uh, we traced people who either had committed acts of terrorist violence within the U.S. or plotted to commit acts of violence, acts of violence. And we traced from 1993, the date of the first bombing of the World Trade Center, to the end of last year, 2017, it's a long period of time, we found over that long period 121 plots. That's not very many that could be linked to the kind of jihadists that are ostensibly targeted by the ban. We found that only 15 of these plots actually resulted in any violence. 
Many of the plots were far-fetched, to say the least. The majority of the plots are actually fairly easily foiled by the authorities, uh, local police, the FBI. Uh, often they proceeded no further than someone saying that they intended to do something, and a surveillance was introduced to the plot, who then basically followed it all the way through. Uh, of the attacks that actually happened, people were killed. The worst, of course, was the 911 attacks. And I think ever after that, we have been following that sort of model that this is what would happen. People would try to infiltrate the country from the outside in order to kill large numbers of Americans. But fortunately, that was a one-off attack. There's been no other attack that really bore much of any resemblance at all. It, it was obviously enormously destructive. Who were the perpetrators? The majority were from Saudi Arabia. Uh, the other plotters were from Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and Lebanon, none of which are on the list. If you look at the other plotters, as well as people who've actually committed acts of violence in the US, if you include the 911 attacks, Saudi Arabia is number one, Number two is Great Britain. <laughs> Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, the number of others were actually citizens of Great Britain who come in without a visa, as I understand it. They don't even have to apply for a visa. Uh, others, uh, Uzbekistan, for example, a random, there's no pattern in the countries, but not from these countries. And here's another little telling example. Uh, there are armed groups who are hostile to the United States operating in these countries that are affected by civil wars. In Libya, in Yemen, uh, in Syria, in Somalia, there are named groups. So the most dangerous of these groups is a group called Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. It's headquartered in Yemen. It's a very powerful group, and it has been the most active group in actually trying to strike within the United States. The most famous of their actions was an attempt to send someone on an airplane from Amsterdam uh, to Detroit. His aim was to blow up the plane. But did they send a Yemeni citizen? No, they recruited a Nigerian. And what this says to you first is that these groups are multinational, transnational groups whose members can be citizens of any country. And second, that these are thinking adversaries, as we say, and it's very easy to circumvent such a ban. You simply recruit someone who comes from a country that's not on the list. It makes it actually easier for them if we're gonna focus our attention on these four countries. Uh, Iran, as Mike said, this is very much both an anti-Muslim, anti-jihadist, and anti-Iran. And of course, remember that in the Syrian civil war, Iran was actually on our side in opposing ISIS in Syria. So it's a strange set of circumstances there. Uh, Iran has no love whatsoever for the jihadist groups. Uh, they are targeted by jihadists in, uh, in their own country. Where there have been incidents of violence that were linked to Iran, these were actions sponsored by the Iranian government, not ordinary Iranians whatsoever. Uh, and these, mostly the perpetrators were people who came into the targeted country with diplomatic credentials. They were, in effect, uh, security services posing as diplomats. 
And we think that President Trump was very strongly influenced by two things. One was a purported plot to kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington. And of course, as we all know, the president is extremely uh, amicable uh, toward the Saudis, very defensive of their interests. And second, that he was influenced by, again, a plot that did not come off, apparently by Iran to target Iranian dissidents in Paris. And of course, it's Iranian dissidents who are much more likely to want to come to the United States and apply for a visa. They are the targets of Iranian terrorism, yet we have put them on the list uh, of banned countries. And I will say that not only the study that I conducted with my colleagues on these plots confirms that this is not a, a, a threat of terrorism to the US from these countries. Uh, there have also been studies by the New America Foundation there have been studies by the Washington Post, again, tracing basically this as a widespread consensus. And in fact, just uh, early September, uh, a letter was sent to the Department of Homeland Security and U.S. authorities signed by major figures in the field of counterterrorism, uh, including Richard Clark, who was in charge of counterterrorism under both Clinton and Bush administrations, and including Nicholas Rasmussen, who was the head of the National Counterterrorism Center, saying that the links between terrorism and immigration were at best misleading. Uh, they were false. It's quite a lengthy letter that you can find in the press, signed by about 15 to 20 major officials saying that this is harmful to our interests. Uh, there's no foundation whatsoever, in fact. And these are people who know facts that the rest of us don't know to illustrate that there's any national security reason for banning these countries. So let me conclude also on that note that there simply is no empirical foundation, but this policy is part of a broader trend, uh, unfortunately, in US policy, which is a very uh, um, America first, uh, as the president puts it. And I think it's a very sad step in a, in a globalized world. Both of you, I, I'm just blown away. And um, I think I've spent the last 45 years hoping that as a member of Kronos, our music could somehow interface with this kind of thinking and this kind of thoughtful discussion. Um, I think I'm gonna change course just a little bit because I'm not an authority on any of these topics. Um, and I thought what I could offer is how someone gets pulled into the world of music. And I'll use myself first as an example. Um, so it was, I think I was eight when a group came to my grade school and I was in the, happened to be in the front row and I remember just being intrigued with this violin and I wanted to play. And so in my uh, public school uh, fourth grade, I was able to start playing violin. Shortly after that, I joined the Seattle uh, Youth Symphony Organization and got to play with a number of other young players. 
at age 12, I joined the Columbia Record Club. In those days, you could send in a penny, and you got to choose five or six LPs. Well, I was reading a biography of Beethoven at the time, and I heard about the late quartets. Well, the Budapest Quartet, this was 1961, Budapest Quartet had just released a recording of the late quartets, and so I got the E-flat major quartet. And so for the first time at age 12, I heard a string quartet, and I'm really lucky that the first string quartet sound I ever heard was those E-flat major chords. And I can hear them right now inside. They've stayed inside of me since then. And what I was able to do, um, which I've been able to do many times since then, is I hear something in the world of music, and then I try to find a way to do it myself. So at age 12, I went to the Seattle Public Library, checked out the score and the parts to Beethoven's E-flat major quartet, called up some friends, and a couple days later, we were in a practice room at the University of Washington, and I gave the cue, and for about a fourth of a second, it sounded like the Budapest Quartet. <laughs> and it quickly devolved, but Ever since that moment, I've believed in fourths of seconds and the value they can give us if we explore them. Okay, fast forward a couple years later, I was walking by the globe at in the, our family home and I had this realization that all the string quartet music I'd ever heard and played was written by four guys of the same religion, same language, and they all lived in the same city at one point or another. That was Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert. And that seemed really weird. <laughs> and since age 14, what I've wanted to do is learn more about music. And music uh, is a wonderful teacher. And what I've discovered is the musicians of the world are a fabulous community of people. And uh, I'm very proud to be included in that uh, group of people. Um, and so, very quickly, my instrument was not really the violin anymore. My instrument became the string quartet. And if you fast forward a little further, um, in August of 1973, um, my wife and I had just returned from uh, Victoria, Canada. I uh, was afraid that I was going to be drafted into the American Army and that uh, uh, I just was totally opposed to the, the American war in Vietnam. So I signed a contract. Well, as it turns out, the army didn't want me about as much as I didn't want them. But I'd already signed the contract. So anyway, we, we spent a year in Victoria, Canada. Uh, 
and it was bizarre because uh, I played in the Victoria Symphony and, and all the wind players were members of the Canadian um, uh, Navy band there. And they didn't like Americans and they particularly didn't like uh, young uh, protester type Americans that were kind of moving in. And anyway, I, I got a little glimpse into what it's like. Uh, so anyway, we came back to uh, Seattle and late one night on the radio, I heard music of George Crumb. There was a piece called Black Angels. Well, Black Angels became this electrifying musical moment for me. And again, I had to learn how to make that sound, that piece. It brought together Jimi Hendrix, Schubert, uh, Renaissance music, noise, shouting, yelling, uh, chanting. It brought so many things together. It became something I had to do. Uh, September 1st, 1973 is when Kronos had its first rehearsal. And the only thing I have in common with our uh, 45th president is at this moment, Kronos has been together for 45 years. Um, As time has gone on, and I've been fortunate to meet musicians from many corners of the world and the, the expansive musical world, um, I've, I've realized how little the, that I know about music and how much there is to learn. And so it was... Um, it was in the late 80s when we first began working with uh, a composer from a Muslim-majority country. Uh, you will hear um, the very first piece written for us by a woman from Azerbaijan. Her name is Frangis Alizadeh. You will also hear music by the Sudanese uh, composer and singer and drummer Hamza Eldin both of whom I met in the late 80s. And each of these relationships began to lead to other um, aspects of knowledge about places I'd never been, languages I'd never heard. And I feel like that's kind of the way music works. And then it was in the late 80s when uh, Steve Reich brought into the world of string quartet music a piece called Different Trains. And Different Trains represents the very first time that I know of that voices of Holocaust survivors were brought into a concert hall. And we actually met some of the people whose voices are in Steve's piece. Um, and I think hearing the quality of voices is an important part of the work of Kronos. And we get to do that in rehearsals all the time. We, you know, we get to bring wonderful, expressive people into um, our rehearsal and hear their stories, hear their voices. Um, and this is an important aspect of learning. And I feel that um, musicians are 
we absorb sounds. And I, I was saying earlier that I'm very, there's, there's a lot of noise in the world. There's a lot of extraneous uh, sound. You hear a lot of it on the, on the news. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to be sure doesn't stay inside of you. And then every once in a while you hear something like Black Angels or um, Beethoven's E-flat major quartet. If you're lucky, you get one of those experiences and you can bring it into your inner world and let it flower and let it grow. And that's what I feel musicians can contribute to our society the most is these special experiences that resonate for us. Um, recently I was, uh, became aware of the fact that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, one of his closest friends was Mahalia Jackson. I don't know how many of you know this, but in moments of despair he would call Mahalia on the phone and she would sing to him on the phone. And we've done a piece about um, uh, Mahalia Jackson. And if you could, if you ever get a chance to hear any of her recordings, please do. It, it's unbelievable at what she was able to do. Um, if you could imagine having Mahalia Jackson sing to you on the phone. Um, but he had the courage to surround himself with musicians. Um, in fact, his lawyer, speechwriter, Clarence Jones, um, was also a trained musician. And it was Clarence that told the story about how Mahalia called out to Martin Luther King, tell him about your dream, Martin, tell him about your dream. And that's when the I Have a Dream speech became the I Have a Dream speech. And uh, I've noticed that in the current uh, White House, as far as I know, there's been no music in the White House. Um, and uh, I guess recently there have been several musicians. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the world of music's a big place. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, but, uh, you know, looking for resonance is what we do. And so the concert on Saturday evening, um, I, I was saying earlier, I feel is the result of 45 years of exploring. Um, trial and error, relationships with amazing um, people, uh, we've had translators, very, we've had all kinds of situations where we needed so much help to accomplish the music that we're trying to do. But what we've always tried to do is follow our ears, that our ears uh, give us the truth in one way or another. I would just like to conclude before Oftab speaks. Um, by saying that I feel that musicians are in a privileged position to be able to make symbolic statements 
a concert might be able to be a nourishing oasis where things actually can work, where surface differences are sonically sanded down. Thank you. Going to hear from Aftab Darvishi. Uh, uh, I don't think I haven't met her. You have, but yes. I met her father. Yes. And when her father was here, her father is a remarkable musicologist who's literally spent 30 years going throughout Iran and recording uh, virtually every form of music that he can find in Iran. We invited him here uh, for a couple of talks. And then he was very interested to meeting uh, David from Kronos Quartet. David uh, kindly accepted, invited us to lunch. We went there, and Mr. Darvishi talked about his musical family and his daughter, who is a musician uh, and works partly in uh, Holland and partly in Iran and makes very, he said, unusual music, right? And David said, I want to meet this lady. <laughs> that was two years ago, and they were trying to get her to come here, and it didn't work because of the band. So now you're going to hear her experience. Well, yes, and I should say that, that one of the things that I talked to Aftab about was um, I'm really fascinated by there's a form, that, well, there's a people in Iran um, I mean, we have African-Americans here. There's African-Iranis in Iran. Absolutely. And there's a kind of music that's absolutely, incredibly beautiful. And I mentioned to Aftab that I, I was, you know, I just love this music. And she said, well, that's what I studied in college. <laughs> anyway, so her, the piece that she's, that she wrote for us and that we will premiere on Saturday night uh, is inspired by that form of music. And in, incidentally, in the com if you go on our website, uh, the conversation, unfortunately, is in Persian. The father talks about that kind of music and how they use it very much in the African tradition for healing. And the, uh, the lyrics are Swahili, a Persianized version of Swahili. That is absolutely remarkable. So, in spite of the ban, off yes. top from Iran. Hi, everyone. My name is Aftab Darvishi, and I have been invited to say a few words as an Iranian musician and as Kronos Quartet's collaborator in Music for Change project about the impact of Trump administration's travel ban on artistic exchange between American artists and collaborators in countries subject to restriction. So first of all, I would like to thank Stanford University for inviting me to this panel. It's an honor to be present here, even if it's through recording with Professor Milani, Professor Crenshaw, Ambassador McFall, and dear David Harrington. So to start this, I'm going to tell my personal story from the very beginning of my collaboration with Kronos. 
A few years ago, my father, who is a composer and scholar, was invited to give a few lectures about Iranian folk music at Stanford. During his stay, he got to meet David Harrington and through their conversations mentioning her, his composer daughter, who was living in Amsterdam at the time. I've been a big fan of Kronos forever, so when a few months later Kronos was in Amsterdam for Holland Festival, I went to talk to David and introduced myself, and he remembered me with his amazing memory. That small talk led to many more longer conversations, exchanging thoughts in music, and ultimately my participation in 50 for the Future project, Music for Change project, and making two arrangements of two songs for Masad Marjons Vakhtet, two wonderful Iranian singers for their upcoming album with Kronos. So to start, probably none of these would and could happen in today's situation with all the current restrictions. But the travel ban really hit me when despite of having two passports, Iranian and Dutch, I couldn't make it to my own concert in Kronos Festival in San Francisco. While I even booked my ticket to America, my visa is still on hold after eight months and it probably will be forever, I think. And this felt really unfair and unreal. Not being able to listen to your own music being played by one of the greatest ensembles in the world because of the country you were born in. So this was my story, but what I think is that this policy will have long-term consequences on the cultural scene of both America and Iran. The conflicts between Iran and America are not something new, but this has nothing to do with us as artists and nations. So during all the past few years, in spite of these complicated equations, the scientific and cultural exchange has been going on between the two countries. As outsider artists, we know America and American artists as extremely open-minded, generous, and curious about other cultures. And I think that is why America has become home to some of best Iranian-born artists today. And my collaboration with Kronos was a proof of this liberty of mine. So I wish that these political restrictions don't stop us from sharing and creating together. And that's all. Um, thank you again uh, for the time I've been given. I think the way, I, I don't know what time it is. One. It, it's one. We have a few minutes for conversation with, uh, between ourselves. In the meantime, if you have questions, kindly write them on a sh uh, card that I think you have been provided. They will be collected and we will try to answer them as, as many of them as possible. So, Mike or, or any of you, do you have any questions or comments?
I, I just want to say that um, listening to both of you today has given me a, a boost. And um, I mean, I think we don't often get a chance to say that to people that are in entirely different fields and, and doing different things. But um, I use my ears. That's, that's my, and I feel like I was hearing the real story, you know? And um, thank you for that. That's, that's what I want to say. The feeling was mutual, by the way. Yes. Well, I think the problem is it's, um, I feel that all of us have tried to tell and are trying to tell a real story. And it's very difficult to compete with information that is, frankly, just quite false. Uh, it's sort of a marketplace of ideas, but I, sometimes I feel uh, not boosted <laughs> that we try so hard to say, but factually there's just, just no foundation for saying that. It's simply wrong. Uh, I think we overuse the term lying. I think that's a, a very harsh term, but certainly there's uh, to, to deliberately convey information that one knows is false. Uh, and to point to a threat that simply has no basis in reality as an excuse for cutting off these kinds of cultural, social, and other exchanges that this country has always been famous for, for since its founding, uh, even in periods of isolationism, to say that, uh, and the irony of saying that immigrants are not wanted in this country when so many of our leaders uh, and their families are from immigrant backgrounds, a very large number, I don't know whether anyone has done a count, but to say we don't want immigrants of, of almost any sort actually, uh, particularly not Muslims, uh, seems to me to be uh, short-sighted and uh, as Mike said, uh, uh, simply immoral. And let me just say that in terms of uh, non-artistic or non-musical performances, uh, the Iranian studies program and FSI, I think, because we do occasionally programs, conferences together, we used to be able to bring in eight, ten people from inside Iran, some of the top Iranian dissidents, artists, writers, vocalists who would come and perform here, showed a different face of Iran. Iran has two faces. It's the dour regime and underneath it is a very vibrant society. And we were bringing these people here. Now we virtually can't bring anybody. It takes two years, maybe, if you get a visa. And we are talking, as Crunch, Martha was talking, we're talking about the dissidents who are fighting this regime. To ban Iranians to come is really double punishing the Iranian people, the uh, Libyan people, the Syrian people. They suffer from a despotic regime. They suffer from all kinds. You know, two weeks from now, we're going to have Parisa to receive a singing award. She's a remarkable vocalist. I'm sure you know her. If Parisa doesn't, didn't have an American passport, we wouldn't be able to bring her here. 
She is the sole Iranian vocalist woman who has fought this regime for the right to perform as a female vocalist. America needs to see this woman. This ban makes it impossible. So it's as much damaging to this country. You know, when you segregate men and women, you put both of them in prison. When you segregate societies, you put both of them in prison. This is not just an imprisonment for Iranians and for Libyans and for Syrians. It's closing of the American mind. Exactly, and, and that's, um, I mean, if anything, this, this afternoon has re-energized my desire to continue to explore musically, to, it's almost like, uh, in a certain way, maybe musicians can provide musical news, you know? And um, w we will find a way around, we have to find a way around these restrictions. I mean, next week we're going to Norway to record with Masa and Marjan Vagat to make a re recording. Um, Marjan, is not able to come here. Yeah. yeah. And Marjan is the sister of Mahsa. Both of them are top musicians. They've been thrown out of Iran because they're members of a Baha'i faith. They have been completely apolitical. Their only crime is that they belong to a Baha'i faith. They're top artists, and one of them can't come to the United States. Their parents can't come to the United States. It's absolutely tragic and shameful. Also, it should be noted, they, they made a video uh, that was filmed on top of a building in Tehran without the uh, hijab. Yes. And that's what got them in trouble with the authorities. And I thought that was great. And Not it to put in a plug for the Iranian studies, <laughs> the woman who started that movement uh, is a very now Masih Ali Najad. She started my still freedom. Right. She told the Iranian woman, go far in the corner, do an unveiled image, and put it on the website. She is coming to Stanford to talk about her new book. Well, I mean, I, I immediately recognized um, uh, a compatriot in life when, when uh, uh, I heard this about... Um, uh, Masa Marjan, uh, reminded me of the time that Kronos was playing in the, uh, I think it was the Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., down in the basement. There's a concert hall. And this was during the um, uh, second uh, invasion of Iraq. And uh, we were playing uh, uh, our version of Jimi Hendrix's version of Star-Spangled Banner, and I told, I told our sound guy, I said, I want this so damn loud that Dick Cheney's going to be able to hear it. <laughs> so we did our best. So do we now have time for some questions? Okay. Thank you very much. Um, so... The, the first question, uh, looking back 
and your experiences exploring music, uh, and I could say intellectual exchanges, what features do you think are necessary for a meaningful cultural exchange? Well, I'll answer first, actually, as a former U.S. ambassador. Um, uh, one of the fantastic things about being the ambassador in Russia, by the way, I'm banned from Russia right now, and, and so when I hear this conversation about being banned, and from the woman that just spoke, uh, you know, I used to go to that country, I, I first went there in 1983. Um, I think over the course of the next 25 years or so, the longest I had ever been out of that country was about three months. Um, and I think I've added it up. I've lived there six or eight years of my life, depending on how we count it. Uh, I have hundreds, maybe thousands of friends and relationships, uh, deep connections to that society, and I, ne I can't go back. So I don't need to tell Abbas, you have the same uh, situation with uh, Iran, but it's, it, it's a jarring personal thing. What I heard, uh, you know, when, when people, uh, the most jarring for me was when, um, a friend of mine was assassinated uh, in Russia, and uh, you know I couldn't I couldn't be there to the funeral. I couldn't go. Um, uh, historical question: Had there ever been a U.S. ambassador banned from? Yes, one other, George Kennan. Uh, so I'm on a good list. Uh, <laughs> but 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 just uh, just for a minute, I just uh, uh, you know I'm I'm not a professional ambassador, right? I was only there for a few years. Uh, my father's a musician. I grew up all around music all the time. Um, and, and so there was one of the great delights of being the ambassador was uh, having a, uh, depending on the venue, but, uh, you know, we could, we could seat four to 500 people in our house. Um, um, and you are required to host musicians because of cultural diplomacy. And, uh, you know, some of the most moving events of my time as ambassador was Americans or Russians, because we broke the rule, by the way. We said, well, why can't we celebrate Russian music, too? Um, and we would have um, uh, Russians come perform at the, our residence, and that was considered taboo and not right, because we're supposed to celebrate Americans. But we mixed it up, and... and just all kinds of different forms of music. You know, just listening to you was reminding me of all the different kinds of music that we celebrated there from uh, musicians from Montana, where I'm from, to the Chicago uh, Symphony Orchestra, um, uh, to uh, Herbie Hancock. Uh, I used to be a trumpet player and uh, I used to love Herbie Hancock and I couldn't believe one day he's sitting in my living room performing. Um, <laughs> And, and the, the thing I will say about it is, is just, just things that are obvious, but they were, without question, some of the most moving uh, events of being ambassador. It wasn't negotiating with Putin and all that stuff. Um, in fact, there were two concerts I remember most visible, uh, memorably. One was this Montana group that came. And, um, uh, you know, country western kind of music and... Um, uh, you're not supposed to dance at Spasso House, uh, I, I was told. Uh, you know, you're supposed to come in your tie and sit for concerts. That's the, the diplomacy. And I was like, Spasso well... House is the ambassador's Yeah, I'm sorry. That's the ambassador's house in Moscow. Fantastic, beautiful place. Go take a virtual tour. For those of you who paid your taxes, thank you for your support at the time. Um, uh, 
And, you know, my father's a country western musician. He's retired now. And, and I was like, well, we need a dance floor. We, and she says, oh, Mr. Ambassador, we don't, we don't do dancing here. We, this is a concert. It's serious stuff. And I was like, well, let's just take three rows out just, just in case somebody might be inspired. Um, and this is at the height of tensions between the United States and Russia. You gotta, you gotta remember the backdrop, right? It was even kind of dangerous to, for Russians to come to an event at my house at the time. And uh, so they took the rows out and uh, uh, they started playing. Um, and uh, I jumped up with my wife and, and did a kind of pretty bad rendition of the two-step, but I can do the two-step. And, and within 30 seconds, you know, I was thinking about quarters of seconds, but it was like, it was like the room was like this, and then it broke, and there were 100 people dancing, Russians and Americans, badly, by the way, very badly, because uh, they don't know how to do the two-step in Moscow. Uh, but it was this break in, in the tension in the room. There were a lot of government officials there, and it was like, okay, music made that happen. Um, and then one more uh, story uh, about these connections. Uh, I won't remember the group, but it was from an all-African-American uh, college in Mississippi. And they came to perform in a giant concert hall in Russia. Um, and again, one of the great things of being an ambassador is you're required to go. Uh, I, I saw more concerts as ambassador probably than I'd seen the previous 20 years. Oh, and by the way, I did work at the White House for three years, and we had a lot of fantastic music when Barack Obama was president. I was I always know. just, uh, yeah, yeah uh, I just was always working. I never got invited. Uh, but as ambassador, I was always there. Anyway, uh, uh, it's not exactly true. Uh, they, you know, there was just incredible, you know, gospel music. Uh, the crowd was moved, and at one point, they started to sing Amazing Grace, and people just stood up, and in their own language, for me, English, and my family, and right next to me, Russians, just started singing together in different languages, but they all knew the tune, uh, and people were crying. Like, people were crying, uh, and they were moved. I mean, you know, talk about, like, connecting societies. People, none of these kids, I met them afterwards, they'd never been abroad before, they'd never been to Russia, and they were connecting with this incredibly sophisticated, you know, I knew the kind of cultural crowd there, uh, and, and that happens because of music. And, and you know, uh, when there's lots of tension as there is now that we, that we are cutting off because we are with Russia as well, these connections, that is just, uh, you know, defeating ourselves, because it was, those were some of the most powerful memories of my time as ambassador. Well, I, I'd like to say also that the generosity of Russian musicians is absolutely unparalleled. In fact, a very formative um, meeting for me was in, um, it was the spring of 1975, and Rostislav Dubinsky, who was the, then the first violinist of the Bordine Quartet, uh, was in Seattle with the quartet. And, and I thought, this is the closest I will ever get to Shostakovich. It was him. I called him up at his hotel. And <laughs> basically, hi, it's me. And, and uh, he, he said, I, I'm sorry, I can't see you after the concert tonight, but if you come to Vancouver, BC tomorrow night, I can see you after the concert. So my teacher, Vita Reynolds, drove me and my wife up to Vancouver. And after the boarding quartet concert, 
essentially, I think we evaded the KGB that was following him. I think that's what was happening. We ended up in someone's home. Dubinsky took three hours. We got done at three in the morning. We went through every note of Shostakovich Eighth Quartet. And he told me all the stories he knew about every melody, every rhythm, every note. This man was just incredibly generous, and I've found that to be the case. And I've found that so many times with musicians, not only in Russia, but uh, basically everywhere that, that, you know. I have to tell a story as well. Uh, we were trying to organize several, for a couple of years, a concert, and I'm truly sorry that didn't work, between the Kronos Quartet and Mohammad Reza Shajarian, who is the top Iranian vocalist. And we were meeting, negotiating, trying, and Shajarian got sick. And he was bedrid in Sacramento in a very serious condition. And I called uh, David, I said, Shajarian is sick. I don't think we can have this meeting. And he said, if you think it will improve his mood, we will take the quartet to the hospital and perform for him. That was truly one of the most humanitarianly generous offer I have ever heard in my life. A group of their stature traveling all the way to Sacramento playing for a few minutes, only to improve the mood of a master of Persian music. <laughs> we have one more question. I think we have time for one more question. Do we? And this is a very hard one. So it's Martha. So it's Martha, yes. Can you play the devil's advocate and suggest anything positive about the travel ban? anything positive about the travel ban. Uh, well, uh, I guess I would like to think that perhaps it has provoked a debate in the United States about the wisdom of travel bans. And I think perhaps, and again, I'm stretching to look for a positive side, uh, the fact that it was so egregiously directed uh, against Muslims was so obvious and so apparent that there was nothing subtle about that sort of discriminatory uh, intent. So I think that, that the fact that, that two, three lower courts actually struck it down, uh, I think that that's encouraging, that it was something that uh, that much time was spent on. It, it actually has been in the press uh, quite a lot. And over time, of course, the number of countries included in the ban has been reduced. The original version of the ban included Iraq, uh, nominally a friend of ours, and uh, nominally more or less democratic, at least from the point of view of official uh, US, and to say that we weren't even allowing their citizens into the country, uh, this provoked a good deal of outrage. It included, for example, translators who'd risk their lives to work U.S. forces. Uh, so I think it is, in many ways, perhaps it has exposed uh, the intent behind it. It was impossible to disguise what it was really meant for. And as I said earlier, it's part and parcel of uh, 
an array of policies and decisions that all have the same motive behind them, which is to keep people who are regarded as other and alien and foreign uh, out of this country. Uh, it, people are not granted visas very easily anymore, even if they're not from the banned countries. It's becoming increasingly difficult. Refugees are not allowed in the country. Um, I, you know, this is not the first travel ban. Nixon issued a travel ban less formally and I think probably less uh, publicly uh, after the 1972 attack on the Munich Olympics. And at that time, the group that we had in mind uh, to keep out was uh, Palestinians, since they were clearly Palestinians were terrorists. That couldn't be any doubt, right? It was very clear. Uh, so it's not the first time, but I think that one, people didn't notice it as much. Uh, should also note uh, that Right after uh, 911, with the passage of uh, that whole package of legislation, including the so-called USA Patriot Act, we instituted a program that was called NSEERS. You don't have to worry about what that stands for, but basically it was providing uh, extreme vetting for people from certain countries. And in 2016, the Obama administration dropped that. They said it was completely ineffective, so that should have told us something there. So I think. The only positive side would be that by publicizing and attracting attention to uh, the intention behind these bans, the effects of these bans, uh, I don't have, I guess, a large hope that the current administration will reverse itself, but perhaps it will have an effect on whatever successor administration that we have eventually. Just to add on the political side, I, I, I totally agree. There was mobilization against it. People went up to airports that had never been there before. People participated. Uh, we learned more about the, the contributions that, that immigrants made from Muslim countries, right? I remember people uh, that, that didn't know, for instance, that Steve Jobs' dad was from Syria, uh, that didn't know about the Persian, the incredible Iranian-American community here in the Valley. Uh, some of the top companies in the Valley are run by Iranian-Americans. Uh, Abbas knows them all. Uh, there's even a former president whose dad was uh, a Muslim. Uh, he's my former boss, Barack Hussein Obama. Uh, and, 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 you know, we began to think about generally, I mean, we're a country of immigrants and without immigrants, we're, we're hardly anything. Um, but but the, the contributions from those countries that were banned got attention. So one, attention to them, two, mobilization. I have right here in front of me uh, something called Looking Back and Fighting Forward on the first anniversary of the Muslim ban 3.0. And this, this is from a group called Moms Rising. Uh, they have a million members across the country. Uh, my wife helped to found Moms Rising and, and still helps to run it. This initiative um, uh, didn't exist uh, before uh, Barack Obama. And it, they have now a whole program reaching out to uh, uh, you know, all of their members to, to bring attention to this. They've raised a lot of money for it. Uh, they you have a whole new program. That's a good thing, I would say. And then finally, there are uh, more um, Muslim, uh, Americans of, uh, uh, who practice Muslim religion, trying to be uh, precise here, running for office. Uh, that, that is something that also has happened. And, and that is something that for everybody else can do. If you don't like what happened, don't whine about it. Get out and vote and make sure everybody you know gets out and vote. Remember, for the students I can't see, if there are any of you there, you're the worst voters of all demographics. Only 20% uh, 
of, 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 of the 20 year olds voted in the last midterm election. 20%. And I hear from you all. I hear from you on Twitter. I hear from you in my classroom how you don't like what's going on. Lots of these people from these countries are fighting for the right to vote. They're people we know. They're fighting to have the privilege that you have and only 20% of you even bother to take an hour to do it. My challenge is don't whine, vote. Yes. Yes. Well, and f I, I, what I wanted to say was that uh, I think, if, if anything, this travel ban has energized um, the musical community. And what this woman was just saying, uh, I'm immediately taken to the first time that I heard the morning call to prayer in uh, Istanbul that started outside of my hotel room. We, we'd gotten in very late the night before. There wasn't one until the morning. And it was one of the most miraculous musical experiences I've ever had. It was so beautiful. And, and it, it's something acoustically that the world should be able to celebrate. It's so beautiful. And, and uh, we were talking earlier about acoustic spaces. And when I go to Paris, I always go to uh, the Cathedral Notre Dame just to listen to the sound of voices in there. You know, it's... Incredible place, incredible. And I think one last wonderful uh, aspect of this is that it has made this gathering possible. That is truly. <laughs> <laughs>